Hello, and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. Hi there, I'm Violet Moller. In this episode, we're going to take a trip to London in the turbulent 17th century. The historian Margaret Lincoln is going to take us onto the city's bustling streets and up its dingy alleyways at a vital moment in our history, when religious divisions had reached breaking point between the king and his people, with Londoners at the forefront of the action. In 1600, the population of London was 200,000 souls. But by 1700, it had risen to over half a million, as people flocked to make their fortunes, lured by the promise of higher wages and adventure. Huge numbers of foreigners had also made the city their home, many of them Protestants fleeing persecution from Catholic authorities on the continent. Margaret Lincoln charts the capital's extraordinary rise in her new book, London and the 17th Century, The Making of the World's Greatest City. It opens with Elizabeth I's funeral procession and ends with the foundation of the Bank of England, something that set the scene for the future of that part of London as the financial centre of the world. Trade was an important driver of growth. As imperial expansion reached new parts of the globe, the city's docks filled with merchants and seamen from Asia, Africa and the Americas, bringing new languages, ideas and luxuries with them and creating a vibrant cosmopolitan atmosphere. Newly established coffee houses became hotbeds of intellectual discourse. The Royal Society and the Royal Observatory were both founded establishing it as a centre of science and innovation. Margaret Lincoln was visiting fellow at Goldsmiths, University of London, and Deputy Director of the National Maritime Museum. I'd like to begin by welcoming you to Travel Through Time, Margaret. Thank you. It's delighted. Today, we're going to be talking about your wonderful new book, London and the 17th Century, The Making of the World's Greatest City. I know that you've previously written a lot on naval history and trade, and even a book about pirates, which sounds very exciting. So I wonder what drew you to writing about this particular century and this particular city? Well, I've always loved London. I've lived in London all my adult life. And it occurred to me that there hadn't been a book that dealt with the whole of the 17th century. Um, You know, people tend to take the Restoration period or the Civil Wars, but nobody does the whole of the century, which I thought needed to be done, actually, because you don't really understand the second half of the century unless you know what happened in the first half. Um, And nobody had really done a book that looked at the history of the port as well as the history of the court or the history of the wars. And you're right, I've done a lot of maritime history, and so I thought it would be good to combine those things. And what do you think it is especially about the 17th century. So what are the, I mean, obviously that, you know, we, we all know that there was a great fire, there was um, the foundation of the Royal Society, a lot of big things happened. Obviously, of course, um, the, the Civil War and Oliver Cromwell. And that. what do you think that it is that makes the 17th century special in London's history? So what happened that, that you think really kind of changed the city? 
Well, you've mentioned some of them. I mean, there were so many revolutions of one kind or another, you know, um, scientific, financial, the rebuilding of the city practically, that I think is one of the most turbulent and important centuries in, in English history. And can you tell us a little bit about what it would be would have been like to live in London uh, at that time? Because, you know, obviously it was a very different size. I know you say that in 1600, the population was about 200,000. And then in, by the time 1700 came, came around, it had increased to almost 500,000, which is obviously a huge increase. There's this wonderful image, which I really hope we can have up on our webpage, which is a digital reconstruction of the Great Fire of London. And it shows the extent of the city at that time. And it is tiny. I mean, it, it's astonishing. The sort of London that was London as opposed to Westminster, you, you could walk across it in, in an hour or so. It was only a couple of miles wide and a mile deep, not counting Southwark on the southern bank. It would have been so crowded, so frenetically busy, so filthy and noisy that I don't think you would have noticed its small size. I mean, the streets would have just been heaving with people and animals and pigs and Awful. Uh, you know, it was it was really unless you were in the very very expensive districts, and of course London has always been very mixed. You would have noticed the smell and the noise. You know, as soon as you got close to London, really. In fact, even before you entered London, you would have been right up against rubbish tips. You know, full of dung and detritus. You know that the city just dumped on the roads outside the walls. And a lot of the animals were driven down to London on the hoofstone, so to speak. You know, you could encounter great herds of cattle and, and lots of geese being walked from Norfolk. You know, I mean, they, they stopped outside the city to be fattened up. So if you can imagine crossing London Bridge with a lot of animals as well, I mean, it, it was Chaos. so hard to think of how it would have been like, really impossible to imagine with any degree of accuracy. Well, then, and also, of course, anyone coming from their small town in, you know, whichever part of the country they come from, for them, it would have been really intense and astonishing because it would be so much bigger than anything they'd ever experienced and so many more people. And Well, exactly. And wages were so much higher in London. Um, so people wanted to come to London, not just to see it, but to, to live and work in London. In fact, you know, mortality was so high in the capital because of the disease and the filth that actually it depended on migrants to, to maintain its population. There'd also been quite a lot of immigration from abroad, hadn't there? Specifically Protestants fleeing persecution in France. That picked up in the second half of the century and, and particularly after the 1680s. Um, so huge numbers of French people came to London and they were very skilled and hardworking, turned around the economy in some respects. I think 25,000 French people emigrated to London. That's a lot. So it was quite a, already, quite a sort of multicultural society, if you could call it that, in terms of people from all over the world. And I know trade was a very important part of its growth. Can you talk a little bit about that? London had been hugely cosmopolitan for centuries. And the black population of London too was increasing because of trade and because of London's involvement in the slave trade. So, um, it's, it's not just uh, white Europeans coming across. It's, it's Laska seamen from South A Southeast Asia. It's, it's black seamen and black um, people that come across because of the slave trade. It's huge numbers of different types of people. And it's because London is a center of trade 
And I think we always underestimate how many how many different kinds of people lived in London. Wonderful. Okay, so that's given us an idea of what, of what it would have been like. So now uh, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all our guests, which is, if you could visit a year in history, what year would it be? Well, I've chosen 1688 because I think it's one of the most important years in English history, and I think it's underestimated. People don't really think of 1688 too much these days as being an important year. It's the year of the so-called glorious revolution. And that's why it was so vitally important. Um, Okay, so can you give us a little bit of the, because we're going to talk quite a lot about the politics. And um, so can you just set up the political scene for us? Because it is quite complicated, isn't it? We've got James II is on the throne. Then we've got um, the population is sort of divided into people who are Catholic and pro bringing Catholicism back to the country. And then we've got the Anglicans, who are the sort of middle of the road Protestants. And then there's another whole group who are called the dissenters. Is that correct? And they're the sort of slightly more radical Protestants who uh, have their own ideas about how society should be um, organised. Everything is in public life is shot through with religion in this period whether or not individuals were as religious as as we think they were. So yes, so in 1688, James II was on the throne and he was a Catholic and he wanted to bring back Catholicism, to, to have more tolerance of Catholics, which actually were a minority of the population. Most people were Anglican, but in London, a lot of people, the majority of people probably were dissenters. So you're right, there, there were people who wanted a more radical Anglican religion. And why were there so many dissenters in London? Was there a particular reason for that? Well, think? I think it's partly to do with London's expansion. The suburbs were always a lot more radical um, because they didn't have so many Church of England churches in the suburbs. And so they made their own forms of worship. And Londoners were very independent and individualistic. It was bound up with their their notions of trade. A lot of traders or, or merchants were dissenters too. There was just a tradition in London of of worshipping in chapels and dissenting houses. But some of the key merchants, they wanted fewer monopolies on trade. They wanted more autonomy to be able to go out and make their fortunes. Okay, And so James II has been king for a a very short time. Mm -hmm. And he's already causing trouble. (laughs) So what's going wrong? Well, nobody likes the king making life easier for the Catholics because of the way in which he did it, really. I mean, there's nothing wrong with toleration. I mean, in theory, you would think that the dissenters would be very pleased to have more uh, freedom to worship as they wished. But James did it by issuing a dispensation from certain acts of parliament that persecuted dissenters. He wanted to repeal the Test Acts, which meant that Catholics and dissenters could not serve in Parliament and could not hold high military office. And Parliament wouldn't pass this law, wouldn't repeal it, um, these acts, because Parliament was firmly Protestant. So James thought he would just dispense with them and exercise his arbitrary power. To people on the street, this sounded like absolutism. Tyranny. Tyranny. And so that caused people a lot of grief. And secondly, of course, his wife got pregnant rather unexpectedly because she'd had a series of miscarriages and he was quite elderly in early modern terms, was in his 50s. And nobody wanted another Catholic king. And they were prepared to put up with James because he was in his 50s and might die soon. 
and he hadn't got any heirs to speak of, but a Catholic heir was a real problem. Yeah. So that caused a lot of difficulty too. And the Catholics in London had been going around since um, the pregnancy was announced saying, oh, we will have an heir, we will have a boy. And so a lot of people didn't believe that she was pregnant at all. You know, notices were pinned up on church walls with uh, satires on them saying that the Queen was pregnant with a cushion. <laughs> and, and that's why, although it seems incredible to us today that anybody could ever believe that the Queen's baby was smuggled into the room in a warming pan, a lot of people did believe it because it had months and months of fake news and uh, rumour about the whole pregnancy. So they were primed to think that there was, um, you know, foul but, yeah, play. But... Okay, well, I think let's let's go to your first first scene, which I believe is the 29th of June. Can you take us to, to wherever we're going? What, what's happening? Well, on the 29th of June, in the court of the King's Bench in Westminster Hall, there was the trial of the seven bishops. Uh, it seems incredible to us now that they would put bishops on trial. But these bishops, including the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London, had refused to announce in the pulpit James's dispensation of the test acts. So, you know, James said, I want you to announce in church, which is the main way that monarchs can communicated with their subjects, that these acts no longer apply. And the bishops refused to do it, so he put them in the tower. And then they were tried, at the, you know, in Westminster Hall on the 29th of June. And that's why I would have loved to have been, because, you know, you can imagine these great oak hammer beam ceilings and the light coming through the gothic windows and a packed court it, it would just have been great to be there not least because you know there are contemporary descriptions of how whenever you got people together there was just a hacking and a coughing because everybody had chest infections <laughs> all the coal fires yeah they really have been coughing all the way through this proceeding did they really smell like people said they must have always smelt because they never washed I think I would have had a, a, a seat at the back in case it did get rather overpowering. <laughs> and, you know, did they bring in things to eat or were there comfort breaks? I mean, how, how did these proceedings actually work? Fascinating. So would the, the king presumably wouldn't have been there. No, he wasn't there. He was reviewing his troops in Hyde Park. So he was obviously prepared for trouble. If things went badly, he had all his troops ready and prepared to quell civil disturbance. But he had packed the judges, you know, he, he thought that he would win this case because he'd packed the judges. But in fact, um, after the proceedings, the judges were split 50-50. And the jury, which was mostly London citizens, of course, were dissenters. They weren't really prepared to acquiesce in the repeal of the Test Acts because they didn't want to give more power to the Catholics. And so did James seriously think he had a chance of, of you know, get, of get, getting them um, condemned? Yes, he did. He did. He really thought he had a good chance of doing it, which even though he was advised to forget the whole business um, not and to use his wife's pregnancy and birth as an excuse, you know, just to put long grass, the whole issue. But he was a very stubborn man. And, um, you know, he went through with it. Yeah. And the jury, of course, was told overnight to, to ponder. They were sent to an inn in a street which is runs parallel or is, is more or less runs the same way as Parliament Street today. So they were sent to the Bell Tavern in King Street and next morning they came back to court and they acquitted the bishops. So you can imagine there being crowds gathering in Westminster for hours and when they heard the news, you know, shouts of joy, bonfires, bell ringing, and general yeah. rioting took place. They even burnt effigies of the Pope. 
So, I mean, this was a huge sign that James had just lost public opinion. Yeah. And presumably the Catholics were all sort of shut away in their houses, hoping that things didn't get too out of hand. Well, if they had any sense, they would have been, yes, because, you know, um, all the Catholic homes were known, the, the major ones, and they were targets. Yeah. So so I think that is a real turning point in James's reign, in fact. Because after that, he, James then started to make concessions. So do you think that was the kind of, that was the moment when he thought, when he realised that, you know, he was just going down the wrong path and he, it, he, he wasn't going to succeed if he carried on? Yes, reluctantly, he began to give the people all the things that they've been asking for you know he would he said he would recall parliament you know he said he would he would not tinker around with the test acts but in fact i mean people had already written to william of orange in holland and asked him to come and save the protestant faith and save the country you know they asked him to invade the letter had already gone so in a sense it was too late it was too late and i suppose because of the the sun they they were worried that, as you say, there was going to be a, a Catholic succession. And the next few months are quite tumultuous in London. There's, there's a lot of rioting, isn't there, and, um, and chaos. And then in your second scene, which is, is it November? Can you take us to, to your second scene? My second scene is actually December the 10th, because this is the night when James, who'd already sent his wife and child abroad, this is the night when James flees London. I mean, he just withdraws in the, in the nomenclature of the time. Nobody quite knew what he'd done, but he'd gone anyway. But you're right in a sense, because this had been building up for a month or so, because the Prince of Orange, William III to be, had landed in Torbay on November the 5th, which of course was no coincidence. He'd planned to land on November the 5th. It was very brave of him, really, to, to consider crossing the Channel in November. It was, you know, he was lucky to be able to cross without trouble. And, and to bring all his troops across. But having landed in the West Country, he took weeks to march slowly towards London, during which time lots of people defected to his cause because yeah, they'd yeah. given up on James. And so, you know, it's, it's a sort of a strange period. I mean, you wonder why James II, who was a, an experienced soldier, didn't march westwards. Yeah, and try and confront him. Yeah, but... Um, I mean, he was very conflicted. I mean, he, he knew he had to keep control of London and he couldn't really move his troops very far across muddy roads in the middle of winter without any food. Mm -hmm. So whatever he thought he, he could do, he immediately came up with lots of reasons why he couldn't do it. Yeah. And can you just explain why was William asked to come? So William was married to Mary. Can you just explain who Mary was and how the, that, that connection worked? So Mary was one of the daughters of James II. William III was actually related to James II very closely. So I suppose the people who asked him to come over and invade thought that they might be getting Mary. It wasn't, it wasn't really clear at that stage whether Mary would become queen and William would just hang around as a consort. But James for a long time couldn't believe that, that William would actually invade, given yeah. that he was his nephew. Yeah. And then what happened to James? He he fled London. Yes, James fled. He got as far as the coast in disguise, where he was practically strip-searched before people realised he was the king, and led back to London, which, of course, was the last thing William wanted. Wanted. <laughs> so um, he allowed James to, to go to Rochester and flee from there. 
Yeah, he didn't guard. Apparently, there was no guard set. So no, there was no guard escape. set. So he left by the back door um, and made it across the channel. When you think of these histories, they're all so bizarre. Yeah, you could never really imagine them happening. But yeah. but this is how it worked. And then out. he went to France and spent the rest of his life. I and mean, he never came back to England, did he? No, he never came back. He lived the rest of his life in exile. You know, as soon as the news of his um, departure leaked in London, of course, there were more riots and more looting. And the home of the Spanish ambassador, who was Catholic, was completely looted and his library was burnt down. And mm. London was absolutely in turmoil. You know, the looting went on for days. But I like the story about the French ambassador who who they, they didn't touch his house because he'd always paid his bills. And I thought, because that's another very interesting um feature of life in in this period and, and and a bit later was that you know these incredibly rich people would buy things on credit and then just never pay for them and, and it, it seems just terrible doesn't it it really does it just seems astonishing today that you know that you could get away with doing that but if you were the duke of whatever then you could you know go and spend an absolute fortune on ribbons and dresses or whatever it was it's, it's astonishing Yes, exactly. So the French ambassador was quite liked in London because, as you say, he did pay his bills. Um, the Spanish ambassador never did. So um, he was an absolute target and they looted mm. him thoroughly. Yes. But of course, a lot of people lived on credit. You know, Seaman's wives lived on credit for long periods. Yeah. So I think this is one of the reasons why, although there was no police force, people were quite careful about whether or not they were respectable. Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colourgraph.co. At colourgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colourisation work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colourised photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Um, great. Well, let's move on to your third scene, which is um, a bit later on in December. Well, it's, it's December the 18th, which is the day when William III marched into London and took it over. Because the rioting had been so bad uh, and so frightening that the city authorities actually invited William to come in. And take charge. Come and, come and restore order. We're depending on you. Which was wonderful, really, for William. So he, he marched in with all his soldiers. And William himself actually marched straight or rode straight to St. James's Palace and ensconced himself there. But he sent his baggage train and all his soldiers to march through London. And Londoners just loved the procession. I mean, they sort of went 
berserk over wonderful processions. Well, you start your book with Elizabeth I's funeral procession, don't you, in 1603? That's right. I mean, we sort of forget these days how important these shows of strength were. So, you know, funeral processions and coronations weren't that frequent, but every year there was the Lord Mayor's show. And what would that have entailed? Oh, well, it would have entailed music and acrobats and speeches and huge processions through great structures that were built specially for the occasion. I mean, it, it was um, it took all day because in the morning, the, the Lord Mayor would have gone up the river with a huge cavalcade of, of livery company barges to be sworn in in Westminster. And then he came back got off at St. Paul's, and then there was a huge parade up Cheapside. In the evening, there was a feast. You know, it went on all day. Yeah. And it was a, a major means of bringing Londoners together. And if you think of a lot of them were migrants from outside London. Yeah. It was yeah. a way of integrating them and, and explaining what the civic values of London were. And having a party. Oh, yes. And having a party too, yes. Because one thing I read that I wanted to ask you about was, you know, that one of the big problems with the sanitation was the lack of sanitation. And and yet uh, when Charles II was restored and then again, I think when James II's son was born, they uh, filled the conduits, the water conduits with wine. But if those conduits were normally full of rubbish and sewage, how, how did that work? Or have I got the wrong end of the stick? I just had this image of these sort of dirty pipes. But I suppose people, people would have just drunk the wine anyway, wouldn't they? Well, I think people would have drunk the wine anyway. Uh, to be honest, I have no idea how they got the wine into these major conduits um, or these fountains. Maybe they just propped it up next to the fountain. Who knows? I mean, a lot of, you're right, a lot of the water came from the Thames, so it wasn't clean. Um, and some of it came from the New River, um, which, so that was better. Yeah. The sort of water was brought down from the River Lee and, you know, supplied a lot of the households. But uh, that's why people drank beer, of course, because the water wasn't, wasn't particularly safe to drink. Yeah. But then it, you said in your book when they started to build those new squares like Golden Square and, um, you know, St. James's Square, exactly. And they, they started to actually, you know, have paved um, paved pathways outside the houses and they built these incredibly beautiful big grand houses with gardens behind them. And that they did have, you know, piped water going to them. Was that the sort of first time that had happened? Was that, did that, was that sort of new era of improved sanitation? If you could afford Certainly it. more houses had piped water for part of the week by the end of the century than in the early part of the century. Nobody washed particularly well. I mean, Pepys occasionally washed his feet because his wife told him to. <laughs> People washed in the Thames from time to time. But again, London was so polluted with coal smoke that John Evelyn, the diarist, says that they emerged from the Thames with a kind of sooty film. Oh, even dirtier than when they'd gone in. <laughs> dirty in a different way yes. <laughs> um okay so let's get back to william of orange he arrives in london and and then what happens i mean is it, it it's always called the glorious revolution so was it quite glorious or is that uh, a misleading title it's misleading in many respects but um you know he was he restored order uh, very quickly not least because the londoners welcomed him with open arms 
And he was made to agree to something called the Bill of Rights, which I think, again, is a very underestimated thing these days. But it, it secured uh, freedom of speech and parliamentary representation and regular parliaments. It's all down to the Bill of Rights, which he and Mary had to agree to before they were crowned. And I think, you know, the importance um, of the Bill of Rights to our constitution is 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 huge, really. Yes. After that, they were crowned, but but it wasn't the end of things and it wasn't particularly glorious because although the revolution was peaceful in England, of course, it was far from peaceful in Scotland. In Ireland, yeah. And was the Bill of Rights a departure from what William, the way that William ruled in Holland? Was that a sort of very different thing or was that something he was quite... There were those ideas something he was quite used to, freedom of speech. And well, in Holland, it, the rule was completely different because, you know, there's a number of states, and uh, but mm. very democratic. But it, it was complete departure for rule in England because, of course, in England, the Stuarts kept on insisting on their divine right to rule as kings. Yeah, and that's what got them in so much trouble, yeah. 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 And the Catholic um, King James was very close to the Catholic King of France. So... yeah. There was another problem. But this, so this was the end of that idea in this country. Exactly. Even before constitutional monarchy, you have no risk that the king is going to wield absolute power. Yeah, so this is, it's a parliamentary democracy from then on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you're right, it's not um, something which is talked about. No, we remember Magna Carta, don't we? But we don't, we don't think of the Bill of Rights in the same breath often. No, and in a way, it's the sort of it's the it, it it seems to me it's the end of this you know long period of really quite you know tumultuous political change with Charles I being beheaded and then the interregnum and Oliver Cromwell and and then back to Charles II and James II. It's almost like this sort of swing the pendulum swung backwards and forwards several times and then it settles and this is what a compromise is reached or a sort of sensible solution is reached. Exactly. And I think, you know, the reign of William and Mary brings in not just stability, but also um, the Bank of England. I mean, it was the first banks were, you know, of that nature were in Holland anyway. Of course. It's William's experience of having that kind of bank, which helps to make it so in England. And then once you've yeah. got the Bank of England, you can have a national debt. And of course, we're very grateful for it today. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely being racked up at the moment, isn't it? Just talk a little bit about, because obviously there was this whole issue of would Mary be queen and would William be consort or would they be joint? And they ended up being joint monarchs, didn't they? And I think that was partly due to a lot of petitions that were signed by Londoners. Is that correct? It was down to a number of factors, really. Mary was a very traditional person. She was in awe of William, even though she was much taller than him. Mm. And she would never have ruled without him being there. I mean, she believed that a wife was subservient to her husband. She was very conventional in that sense. And when William made it known that he wouldn't stick around unless he was made king, you know, he didn't come to England, he said, to be tied to his wife's apron strings. Mm -hmm. It was no problem for Mary to say, right, you are, dear. You know, um, I never did mean to rule without you. Yeah. And in a case, it was very difficult for her to take her father's place. Yes. But but then I want to ask you about that, because that seems also strange and fascinating that this man, James II, married 
you know, uh, completely against everyone's will, this Protestant girl... I mean, I don't know, did he become Catholic when he was older or was he always Catholic-leaning? Because he married this girl who was a commoner, which in those days was just absolutely not done, was it? And even her father was saying, you know, this marriage shouldn't happen. So, but they went ahead in secret and got married. And I just, I just wondered if you could shed any light on that. It seemed like a very... I mean, I guess he just fell in love. Well, maybe he had a sense of honour... But yes, you're completely right. He married a commoner and had two daughters, um, you know, Mary, who became Mary II, and Anne, who became Queen Anne. Yeah. They both, um, you know, didn't have the best of health. James II had had two daughters, um, and they were Protestant. They'd been brought up in the Protestant faith. But he later turned Catholic, as his mother had been a, a French queen. You know, she'd been yeah, brought up yeah. a Catholic and she was Catholic. And so he turned Catholic, as did Charles II. Yeah. And he was a very uh, stubborn Catholic. He not only wouldn't just practice his religion in private, he wanted to uh, make life for the Catholics in London a lot better. Yeah. And he yeah. wanted Catholics to take their part in public life. And that's what brought him into conflict with his subjects. And in actual fact, the that that the Test Act that that wasn't repealed until a lot later, was it? You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, those acts stood in place for centuries. Yeah, Catholics were absolutely persecuted. Really, they weren't mm. allowed to have. They weren't mm. allowed to go to university. They weren't um, allowed to take public office. Very tricky. It's interesting. Do you think that was exacerbated by what happened in France and? and the Netherlands, the, you know, the persecution of Protestants, do you, and, and then, you know, the immigration, specifically in London, I suppose, I'm talking about, do you think that exacerbated anti-Catholic feeling? It must have done. It, it certainly did. I mean, when people saw how Catholic um, Louis XIV treated his subjects, mm. they thought, well, you know, if we're not careful, Catholic James II will do the same to us. Yeah. They just didn't trust him at all. But he brought his own fate on himself. If he'd been um, more sensitive, if he'd been less stubborn, um, people would have let him reign and there would have been no problem. Yeah. Um, although I think the fact that he had a, a, a baby son would always have been a little bit of a problem. Of course. Yes, and that baby son um, went on to be quite a problem. He has such a sort of romantic appeal for a long time, and and even his son after that. Can we talk a little bit about the palaces where they were living? Because I read that you 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 say in your book that Elizabeth the first was the last monarch who lived a sort of peripatetic lifestyle, you know, going on um, progresses round the countryside, and James very much lived in his own palaces, and and that sort of changed. And I wonder what, um, you know, which palaces in London were being built at, at this time and and can you just talk a bit about that in relation to 1688 James II where which palaces did he live in and then did William and Mary build their own or how did that work? Um, James II lived in Whitehall uh, which was a huge sprawling palace uh, you know a sort of complex of buildings uh, near Westminster Abbey and he also lived in St James's Palace so those were the two main palaces in London at this time but there were a series of fires in Whitehall when William came, because he suffered from asthma and couldn't really cope with the pollution in London, because there was a pall of coal smoke mm. over London. He preferred to go to Hampton Court, which was, you know, 
more in the countryside and a, a cleaner air in Hampton Court. But it was just a little bit too far from the main uh, affairs of state in London. So he couldn't really stay in Hampton Court. It was somewhere you could go at the weekend, but not, not in the week as well. So they looked around for another house and um, they hit upon Kensington Palace, which was just a house then, which Mary had expanded and decorated. And she was very fond of gardens and she had a big garden and laid out. And of course out. it would have been surrounded by fields at that time, wouldn't it? Exactly, exactly. And William had a sort of um, path to it built through Hyde Park, yes. St. James's Park, which meant that he could get to it more easily. And that's where they, they stayed mostly. Whitehall had suffered another big fire, which they, they never fixed, and it gradually fell into disuse. And didn't you, you said in your book that the, the road that they built between um, Kensington Palace and Whitehall was the first road in, in, in the country to be lit with streetlights? The, the first road to be efficiently and regularly lit by streetlights. Okay. Um, London was getting more and more streetlights as, as it became more of a 24-hour city. You have to imagine at the beginning of the century, there was a curfew and people went to bed when it got dark. Nobody would be around in the dark with a lantern. And was that because it was just too dangerous? There was too many dodgy people around after dark? It was just inconvenient to walk around in the dark. And the people who were walking around in the dark were usually up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> so so there were watchmen who, who sort of made sure that people went home to their beds. But as more and more coffee houses opened, so more and more people were out nine, ten o'clock at night, you know. Yeah. And eventually more streets became lit and that and London began to get more of a nightlife. Yeah. And t- tell us a little bit about the coffee houses, because that was another aspect of your book which I found really fascinating. How how did they change the city? Because now you know, one of the things that the first things you, you would probably think of if you think about London is you think about the 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 restaurants and the shops and and the coffee houses we don't call them coffee houses but you know the cafes and so that sort of remained a a big attraction well coffee houses were a a major major force in in the 17th century the the first one was set up um, in Cornhill in about 1652 but they caught on very rapidly because they were so convenient I mean people soon discovered that doing business in taverns which they always had done of course was not such a good idea that it was better to do it with a clear head in a coffee house. And so that was purely because it's better to be drinking coffee rather than drinking beer. Yeah, they did find out eventually that, you know, doing business when you were half drunk wasn't such a good idea after all. And that maybe it was better to drink coffee. And also people used coffee houses as a kind of business address. In those days, most people rented rooms, you know. Yeah. They weren't always very salubrious. So rather than um, give your address out and have people see the, the state of your own home, people gave their coffee house address where they picked up their post and where they could be found for business. Um, so it's kind of a form of hot desking. Yeah, exactly. Like those very modern offices where you just rent a, a space. For... That's fascinating. I did not know that. Yeah, How and amazing. as the postal systems set up, of course, the coffee houses where letters would be collected as well, as well as other places. But yeah. you could leave your letters at, at a coffee house to be posted, and they would be collected. You could get your mail there. You could you could get coffee and read the papers for free. Yeah. And the other big thing about them was that that you didn't have to be introduced to people who were your social superiors. You know, you met people that you wouldn't normally meet. Yeah, and they were great places for discourse and. Um... Co- conversation weren't they yeah and they were warm 
Yeah. You know, if you couldn't afford a fire, the yes. coffee house was warm. You've got a lovely image um image of one in, in the book. And yes, there's this huge cauldron over a roaring fire. It looks very cozy. Um and what kind of people would run them? Would would were they a specific type of person who would uh, set up a coffee house or Well they'd have to be a, a good businessman, although they always tended to have a woman present at the bar, you know, with the with the cups. Yeah. Partly I think um because she would have been an added attraction, you know. Okay. Um, she couldn't really leave her post and had to put up, no doubt, with a lot of banter. But some coffee houses were little better than brothels. Oh, okay. They had a sort of hierarchy of coffee houses. So the big ones were, you know, famous for you know, entertaining dramatists or poets or yeah. certain businessmen or insurance. But the, the sort of small pokey ones could have been brothels and they could even have been places where, where stolen goods were fenced. Because you see lots of adverts in the newspaper saying, you know, lost, I don't know, making it up, gold ring. Yeah. Anybody who could return this ring, no questions asked, um, I'll be at this hot coffee house. And, you know, people would get their stolen goods back again for a small reward. In fact, if, if the, the, the item that was stolen had no intrinsic value, if it was you know, a pocketbook or a bond, People stole these things in the hope of getting a getting re- a reward. <laughs> exactly. How interesting. Fascinating. Thank you. Well, I think the time has come for me to ask you the, the final question, which is, of course, um, if you've been able to pick something up from one of the scenes that we visited today, what would it be? Well, I, I worked for many years in a museum. So when people ask me about objects, I always think of things like, what would they look like in a display case and how easy would they be to conserve? So I think if I if I had a choice, I would choose um, one of the spurs of William III when he was wearing one of the spurs he would have been wearing when he came into London, and I, I think it would be a good object because it's it's ambiguous. Um, on the one hand, it could it could symbolise you know spurring ahead and advance you know sunlit uplands, a new era. Yeah. But on the other hand, it could symbolise the the violence with which he uh, imposed his regime in, in Ireland, especially in Scotland, because this was not a painless, glorious, peaceful revolution in those nations. You know, it, it was it was a sort of turbulent, violent period. So I think a spur would would kind of convey both those aspects of what was happening. I like that. That's a very good choice. Um, thank you very much, Margaret. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. It's been very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. That was me, Violet Muller, speaking to Margaret Lincoln the other day about her wonderful book, London and the 17th Century, The Making of the World's Greatest City, which is out now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>